Bible and turn to Psalm 19. The book of Psalm, chapter 19. Um, those hymns that we sang this morning, did you pick up on the theme? Did you pick up on a very common idea that uh, was presented there? I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. Creation, that's right. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder considered all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And uh, this passage for our scripture reading picks up on that idea, or I should probably say that the other way around. Those hymns pick up on the idea that we find here in Psalm 19 verses 1 through 11. And this is important for us to understand in the portion of Scripture that we're studying in the book of Romans this morning as well. So, Psalm 19, verse 1, you follow along as I read, and I want you to note in verses 1 through 6, it talks about what we call general revelation. And I'm going to explain more about that later in the message. General revelation. What is displayed in creation. Then in verses 7 through 11, it's going to talk about God's Word. It's going to talk about the Bible. So, uh, verse 1, it says, uh, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Now verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, 
By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, verse 1 through 11. Now, as you turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 19, Romans chapter 1, verse 19, I want to read a passage from the book of Acts that is related to it, it's connected to it. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 27 is where I'm reading. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 says, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since he, gives, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. And so that passage also relates to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 this morning. Now, I know there in your notes it says 19 through 23, but the more I got looking at this, I just have zero confidence in myself thinking I'm going to get through verse 23, okay? But uh, we are going to get through verse 20 this morning here. So, in our study of the book of Romans, we are considering at this point why man needs to be justified. Why does man need to be declared, to be declared righteous before God? This is the first major section in Paul's letter to the Romans. It runs from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And in this section, Paul is demonstrating why everyone is under God's wrath. And so he addresses three kinds of people in this first big section. He addresses the pagan Gentile. Uh, we might call this mankind in general. It's who I have labeled the God-rejecting man. That's the first guy he talks about. Uh, the second person he addresses is the judgmental man, the moralist man, the legalistic man. I've labeled him the hypocritical man. And finally, the last kind of person that Paul addresses as he shows how all men are under the wrath of God is the Jew, who I have called the privileged man. So last week we studied verse 18, and uh, we studied this idea that the wrath of God is revealed. And what we saw there is that uh, the wrath of God is the result of a violation of His righteous standard, a violation of His own personal righteousness. And so the wrath of God is God's anger against sin. We saw that God's wrath has a both present and future relevance. 
Thirdly, we saw that God's wrath is being revealed. That is, it's evident. It's evident. You can understand it. You can see it, experience it. And fourthly, we saw that God's wrath is on or against all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And that these men, they have the truth. They hold on to the truth. But they do it in unrighteousness. They respond to the truth in an unrighteous manner. And so this week, and these verses we're going to look at today, we're going to see the specific reason for God's wrath. The specific reason for God's wrath and why all men are under God's wrath. We're going to see that man has knowledge of God. That man doesn't respond properly to what he knows about God. And then man is going to try to replace God. Now, as we look at these verses, I want you to... Kind of set yourself up here a little bit. Have you ever thought about another person? Have you ever thought in this way about someone else? If they could just know, they could just know God exists. And if they could just realize what God has done, they surely would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, man, if they could just know there's a God and understand that God created this world, boy, they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Well, that kind of thinking is not actually correct. It's not actually what it is required for Christ to be your Savior. This kind of thinking believes that knowledge is the key to salvation. That just knowing something is the key to salvation. And while it's certainly true that in order to be saved, you have to have a knowledge of certain things, right? You have to have a knowledge that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for your sins. And that by trusting in Him, you can have everlasting life. You do have to know that. But knowledge is not the key issue when it comes to salvation. Because the knowledge of God does two things. It makes man accountable. Man's responsible for that knowledge. But it also gives man the opportunity to respond to the knowledge that they have. That's what understanding does. That's what knowledge does. It makes us accountable, but it also gives us an opportunity. Uh, the Bible teaches us that man does, in fact, have a certain knowledge of God. That's what it teaches us. But it also teaches us that man has not responded properly to the knowledge that they have. In fact, man has rebelled against the truth of God and seeks to do whatever he can to eliminate, to extinguish, to annihilate God from his life. Does whatever he can to do that. And so this morning as we study this passage, we're going to see why this is true. Now, 
In these uh, verses, you'll notice there on your outline, there's two main points. You have the universal condition, that's major point one, and then you have the historical description. Okay, the universal condition is probably all that we're going to get through today. But this is how this passage is divided up into these uh, two sections. Um, this is how Paul divides this up. If This is not how I would divide it up, but I had a whole different outline I was going to look at. But then I started paying a little bit more attention to what Paul wrote. And Paul wrote a certain way. And this is how Paul divided things up. So, and I don't mean Paul Aquilano. I mean the Apostle Paul. And so I'm going with the Apostle Paul on this. And so let's take a look first at the universal condition. The universal condition, verses 19 and 20. There are seven things, seven things to consider under the universal condition of man. Look at the beginning of verse 19. Here we see the connection to God's wrath. There's a connection between... The knowledge of God and God's wrath. The, the word because. The word because there. Because of this, or we might say for this reason. It introduces us to why God's wrath is revealed against sinful man. Why is God's wrath on sin, sinful man? This word because is telling us Pay attention. I'm about to tell you why. I'm about to give you the reason that God's wrath is on sinful man. Now, I just point out a little structural detail here in your Bible. You'll notice verse 19 has this word because at the very beginning. Now, if you let your eyes go down to verse 21, you'll see because. At the very beginning of that verse, these are the exact same Greek words, and this is how Paul is showing how this passage is divided up with this word, because. So this, there's this connection. There's the connection between what Paul is going to say here and the wrath of God. And the next phrase in this verse tells us that the knowledge of God is for man. The knowledge of God is for man. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So what may be known of God is manifest in them. So this idea of what may be known of God is talking about what is knowable about God. What is knowable about God to man in general. It's talking about what all men can understand. This is knowledge that God has given to man in general. And it goes on to say is manifest in them. The, the word manifest here is the idea of what is clear, what is plain, what is in fact known. So the knowledge of God that's spoken of here is the truth about God. And it is plain and clear. Plain and clear. It's understandable. The truth about God is plain and clear. And in the New King James, it says, in them. Now, 
I don't think that's a particularly good translation because it has this idea, if you read it that way, it has the idea that man inherently has a knowledge of God within them, which is true. Okay, That's true. It's just not what this passage is saying. Okay, There's other passages that tell us that man has a knowledge of God in him. Just We'll stick in Romans. Turn over to chapter 2 real quick. I just want to illustrate this point. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So Paul is writing, and he's particularly going to start picking on Jews here. So he's going to distinguish between Jews and Gentiles. Now, one of the things that distinguishes Jews and Gentiles is God gave the Jews what? The law. The law. So look what it says here. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, they do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. That's, those two verses there show us that man inherently has a certain knowledge about God, about His standards, built into them. Okay? So, those verses say that. But now if you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, chapter verse 119 doesn't say that. Okay? It doesn't say that. I think most of your translations, in fact, probably say, is manifest to them. King James says, unto them. Okay, so God's message, God's knowledge, the truth of God is to man. It is manifest to man. It is made plain and clear to man. Now, why is that so? Why is it that this knowledge of God, this truth about God, is plain and clear to man. How do we know that? We'll look at the last part of verse 19. For God has shown it to them. He has shown it to them. So the knowledge was given by God to man. It answers the question, how does man have this knowledge about God. How does he have it? Answer, God's given it to him. God has shown it to him. The knowledge of God is plain and clear to man because God has made it plain and clear to man. This knowledge is the result of a divine act. Do you see that? For God has shown it. God is the one who acts here. 
And this knowledge is clearly understandable to man. So God has displayed it. He has revealed it. And he has disclosed this knowledge to man. I think there's two important conclusions we need to draw from this verse at this point. Number one, God is the active person in disclosing knowledge about himself. He's the one who's doing it. Okay, and so... Any idea that God just created the world and stepped back and is no longer doing it, that's not true. God's active. He's active and he's disclosing knowledge about himself. Man has knowledge about God because God wants man to know about him. Think about that. Man has knowledge of God, not because man's so smart, Man so technologically advanced. That's not why man knows God, knows about God. Man has knowledge about God because God wants man to know about him. Because God has already acted to disclose himself to man. A second implication we need to see here is that God is capable of communicating what he wants man to know. He's capable of communicating. We might take that for granted. Okay, we might take it for granted. But there's many people today who don't think that communication is possible. You can't really communicate anything of substance. And you certainly can't communicate anything about God. But God can communicate. And why do we know that God can communicate? Well, here's a real simple answer. Who invented language and communication? God did. He made it. He can use it. And He can do it perfectly. So God is the one who is communicating here. And He's totally capable of communicating either with words and language or in other ways, such as his creation. So in the first three points here, A, B, and C, we should see that the knowledge that man has of God is knowledge that comes from God. And we'll we'll be quick to notice that this knowledge is not all the knowledge there is about God. It's not everything that, it, that uh, we can know about God. And it's certainly not what God, everything that God has revealed about himself. There will be certain qualities that God says he has revealed to man. There are certain things that God has revealed to man about himself. We'll see that in verse 20. Secondly, we understand from these first three points that this knowledge has been made available to man by God himself. This is God the Father has made this knowledge available. Thirdly, this knowledge is plain and clear. It's not mysterious. It's not vague. It's not cryptic. It's not limited to really smart people. It's not limited to 
scientists and philosophers, college professors. This knowledge is for every person, every single person. Now, as we move on to verse 20 here, we see that this knowledge has been, avail- has been available since creation. Since creation. Look what it says, verse 20. So, for since the creation of the world. It's talking about when this knowledge became available. When the world was created is when this knowledge began to be available to man. The idea is here, here is from the time of the creation of the world, man has been able to know what God has revealed. Starting from the creation of the world, man can know this knowledge that God has made manifest to him. And this knowledge continues to man today. Okay, you, you probably can't see this real well in English, but I think, I think it's there. The word sense, okay, the word sense is a preposition. And it has the idea of beginning, but it also has the idea of continuation. You know, so since the creation of the world, there's a starting point, but it also continues on. Furthermore, a little bit later here in verse 20, we see the two words being understood, being understood. That's in the present tense. It's a continuous idea. And so this knowledge that we're talking about here this morning, this knowledge that God has given to man, began to be available at the very beginning of creation. And it continues to be available even to this very day. So since this knowledge has been available since creation, that means there is no one who has been left out. No one has been left out. No one is exempt from receiving this knowledge. No one can claim that this knowledge has not been made available to them. Because this verse here tells us not only when this knowledge first became available, At creation. That's when it first became available. But it also tells us the extent to which this knowledge has been made available. By definition, if this knowledge is given at creation, it is given to everyone since creation. It's available to all men. So God has made this knowledge available to all men from the very beginning. And notice the next phrase in verse 20. It starts to talk about and explain what this knowledge is, what the contents of this knowledge is. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood 
by the things that are made. Okay, it's it's introducing us to the content of the knowledge. What exact knowledge are we talking about? But he uses a kind of strange expression here. I think it's a strange expression. He says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Okay, so unseen yet clearly seen. The unseen things of God are clearly understood. So let's think about this a little bit. What's happening here is there's a play on words that are happening. A play on words. Invisible, clearly seen. Unseen things, clearly seen things. What do we call that? When you do something like that, what do you call it? It's called an oxymoron. An oxymoron, right? When there's a combination of ideas that seem to contradict each other. Invisible, unobservable, unseen, clearly seen. Right? Well, there is no contradiction here because Paul goes on to explain what he means by clearly seen. And he he shows us here that he's not speaking about seeing something visually, seeing something with your eye. He is speaking about understanding, being understood. He's talking about your perception. He's talking about the activity of your mind. And so he says his invisible attributes are clearly seen, clearly understood, clearly perceived. Now, I want to just take a little slight digression into the weeds here. Um, You'll notice in your Bible, depending on what translation you use, this phrase, invisible attributes. Now, uh, the King James, as far as I know, is the only translation that actually gets this exactly right. The King James reads invisible things. Everybody else kind of messes that up. Only the the New King James doesn't get it exactly right, but at least it tells you in the New King James that, you know, they've inserted something here. They've inserted attributes in here, you know, and and so the problem, the problem there, your Bible might say invisible attributes. It might say invisible qualities or characteristics or something like that. The problem with adding those descriptions to the word invisible is that it makes us think that this is talking about something more than what it's actually talking about. Because Paul goes on to define and limit what he's talking about. And so it's just unseen things, invisible things. And these things are clearly seen, clearly Perceived. This is an emphatic word. Clearly, crystal clear. When uh, when I was in boot camp, I do remember that long ago. When I was in boot camp, the drill instructors would come through and they would give you instructions and 
say things. And they would ask, do you understand? And we were conditioned to say, okay, we were conditioned to say, when they asked, do you understand, we would say crystal. Okay? Crystal clear. Is, is these, these instructions that I just gave you, do you understand? Crystal clear. All right? That's sort of the word that's being used here. Clearly seen is emphatic. It is crystal clear. It is, it is totally and completely understandable with the mind. It goes on to explain this a little bit more, and it says, being understood. Being understood. In other words, uh, these Invisible things of God are not seen with your eye, but they're understood with your mind. Now, one of the things we're going to see here is that this knowledge that God is giving comes from creation, comes from looking at creation. But when you go outside and you look, do you see God? Do you actually see God? You don't. But you can understand There is a God from looking around you. And that's what Paul is talking about. You can understand with your mind things about God from the observation of the world. And he says the those that can understand this, he describes them as the things that are made. The things that are made. Now, that's a very literal translation, the things that are made. But we have to understand that in its context. We have to ask the question, well, what are the things that are made? What are the things that are made? Well, what do these things that are made do? The thing they do is understand. Of all creation, of all that is on the earth, the only thing that's been created, that has understanding, that has the ability to reason, is man. Trees were made. Can they understand? No. Fish were made. Can they understand? No. Birds were made. Can they understand? No. Even dogs don't have reasoning. I mean, it's quite obvious that cats don't have any reasoning. But even dogs don't have reasoning. Animals operate on two principles. Instinct and conditioning. That's how they operate. They do not operate with reasoning. Man is the only creature on the earth that has reasoning. So with the mind, man can understand certain things about God, which God has disclosed to man, but which are not physical. They're not visible to the naked eye. They are immaterial facts about God. And as we look down to the next phrase in verse 20, we see that, This knowledge is about God's eternal power and Godhead. So it says, 
His invisible attributes or his invisible things are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now, what are these things that man should understand and that God has made clear? His eternal power and his Godhead. Eternal power. Here, this is the eternal. Here's an interesting word. It only occurs here and in Jude 6. That's the only places in the entire New Testament where this word occurs. And it has the idea of always. It's an alwaysness. Okay? So we use the word eternal. And we need to be careful when we talk about eternal. Because sometimes when we talk about eternal, and I think we might have talked about this in Sunday school last week, sometimes when we talk about eternal, we just think in future, in the future. Eternal goes into the future. Well, the word eternal goes into the past and into the future. It's always. In other words, something that is eternal did not come into existence. It has been always. And so when it talks about God's eternal power, it is referring to God's creation power. But it's more than that. It's talking about He is all-powerful. And this is power that has always existed. Secondly, we see that the other piece of knowledge that man can have about God is his Godhead. This is the word for deity, deity or divinity. And it's just the idea of Godness. I made that word up. Godness. It's the idea of how do you define God? How do you define God? He is the supreme being, the supreme being. So. What we learn from these two pieces of information, we learn three things from these two pieces of information. We learn, number one, there is a God, right? We learn there is a God. We learn that this God is all-powerful, eternal power. And we learn that this God is the supreme being. He is the supreme being. We learn those three things. Now, what does this knowledge about God do to man? What does it do to man? Look at the end of verse 20. So that they are without excuse. It makes man unexcusable. Man has no excuse for not knowing that there is a God, that He is all-powerful, and that He is the supreme being. The result of God giving this knowledge to man through creation, the result of that is that man is now accountable to know there is a God, He's all-powerful, and He is the supreme being. And so man is without excuse. That word excuse there is the word we get apologetic from. Have you ever heard of apologetics? I know many of you have. Apologetics is just to give an answer or to give a defense. 
And so what God is saying here, what Paul is writing here, is that man has no defense. Man can't say, I don't know about God. Man can't say, well, nobody told me. Can't say that. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for this. So the knowledge that God has made known to man results in man having no excuse before God. Man is accountable to God for what God has disclosed to him because God has made it plain and clear to man. This means that if man doesn't acknowledge the existence of God, doesn't acknowledge that God exists, and that he is the supreme being who is all-powerful, if man doesn't acknowledge that, it is not because he doesn't have the information. Man can't say, well, I didn't know there was a God because nobody gave me the information. I didn't know he was the supreme being because nobody told me. I didn't know he was all powerful because I did not get the email. Somebody left me off the prayer chain list. There's no excuse because man has this knowledge. He has it. God has given it to him. God has provided this information in creation. So there is no excuse for anyone to not recognize the existence of God, His supreme being, and that He is all-powerful. I want you to understand, no man, and I'm using that in the absolute sense of no, no man is ignorant. Men are negligent. Negligent. They're not ignorant. The knowledge has been provided. It is all around them. They are negligent in not recognizing it. So this is the universal condition of all men. The universal condition of all men is that God has made known to man through creation that he exists, that he's the supreme being, and that he is all-powerful. My goal here, at least part of my goal here, is by the time we get done, you will know what God has revealed about himself in creation. That he exists, that he's a supreme being, and that he's all-powerful. Okay, That's why you hear that over and over again. This is what you see in creation. God has made this known, this knowledge, available to all men everywhere at all times. All men, everywhere, at all time, since the creation of the world. That's when the knowledge is available that there is a God, that he's the supreme being, and that he is all-powerful. Since the creation of the world. That means everybody from Adam to today. Fifty years ago, this would be my brother. This is my brother's birthday. He's 50 years old today. Okay, we were both born on Labor Day. My poor mom. In labor on Labor Day. One year apart. So from Adam 
till today, every, even the baby that is born today, this knowledge is available to them because God has made it known. You don't have to see God to know that he exists. You don't have to see God to know that he's the supreme being. You don't have to see God to know that he is all powerful. We see what God has done and it reveals this information to us and we are accountable to him. So Paul, in dealing with the reason that man needs to be justified, says the universal condition of man, the universal position of man before God is that he has received knowledge from God, knowledge about God himself. And therefore, man has no excuse for not knowing God in this way. And this knowledge about God comes from what we call general revelation. It comes from the creation around us. Uh, revelation, that word, refers to the revealing of truth. More specifically, it refers to God revealing truth. And God reveals truth in two ways. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the creation around us. Special revelation is when God directly communicates words to men. What is the number one example of special revelation? Your Bible. Your Bible. These are God's words. Your Bible is special revelation. God has revealed truth in both ways. But what Paul is saying here is that general revelation, the information out there that God has made available through his creation, that he exists, that he's the supreme being, and that he is all-powerful, he's saying this information is available to all men. And so general revelation chronologically precedes special revelation. Do you realize that? Before God communicated with words, he created. So general revelation comes first. Secondly, special revelation specifies general revelation. It never works the other way around. General revelation never can never tell you specifics or more information. Special revelation can. General revelation is more susceptible to misunderstanding than special revelation. Reve special revelation is specific. It's clear. It's detailed. Just like our passage here today is clear. Specific and detailed. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses special revelation to explain general revelation? That's the only way it can be explained is by direct communication from God. And general revelation leads to special revelation. It leads to special revelation. I read this passage earlier in our scripture reading, but I want us to take a look at it. Go back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I want you to see an example 
of how this works. So let me just remind you real quick of what's happening here. Uh, We're about verse 22, somewhere in there, to verse 27, verse 30, right in that, that general area. But this is what's happening here. Paul is in Athens, and he goes up to the Areopagus because he's invited to speak to the philosophers. And he notices in verse 23, he notices there's an altar there. And it has this inscription on it. To the unknown God. Which that might be an oxymoron as well, because how do you know there's an unknown God unless you know there's a God? Right. So now right away, right away from that, we can understand that these philosophers missed two Facts, two pieces of information that the creation tells us. That God is the supreme being and that he's all powerful. They do understand God exists, right? Because they got an altar to him. He exists. And so what does Paul do when he sees this? What Paul does is he tries to explain to them the gap in their understanding. And so you can see what he does. He says in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it. We can just stop there. So he goes to creation. And he points out that God, the one true and living God, is the creator of the world. He is all powerful. He's all powerful. And then he goes on in the second part of the verse. And then down into verse 25. He says this, verse 24b, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So now he points out to these philosophers that this one true and living God is the supreme being. Man is not. God doesn't need man. It's the other way around. And so while they understand there is a God that exists out there, they didn't understand he was the creator, all-powerful, and that he was the supreme being. And Paul explains this uh, to them. And then Paul goes on to show How this information leads to more information about God. Look at verse 26. And he had made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. Drop down to verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul points to general revelation. And from general revelation, he gives them specific revelation. And that revelation is God commands all men everywhere now to repent. 
And so in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul is talking about how general revelation, how the knowledge that God has given in his creation makes all men accountable to God for that knowledge and that men are without excuse. So this knowledge that God gives in creation does two things. Makes man accountable and it gives man an opportunity to respond. Gives them an opportunity to accept and believe what they see about God. What they know about God. And if man responds properly, To what God has revealed, God will give them more knowledge and information. So the question that we have to pose to ourselves today is, what are we doing with the truth that God has given us? God has given us way more truth than anybody that you read in the Bible. I mean, you think about Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, even the Apostle Paul. We have more truth than they had. We have more truth because we have the complete Bible. What are we doing with the truth that God has given us? Do you recognize it? Do you accept it as truth? When you read your Bible, do you accept it as truth? And do you respond in obedience? If you don't do that, if you don't accept what God says as truth, and if you don't respond in obedience, this is what happens to your life. You will go deeper and deeper in your rejection of God. You will go deeper and deeper into sin, and you will end up broken and empty. But this is not what God wants for us. He wants us to seek him and know him. And he has made himself available to us. Why don't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for the fact that in your word, you tell us that you have shown yourself in your creation. And that we can look at creation. We can look around us. And we can know you exist. We can know that you are the supreme being. That you are God, we are not. That you are God and no other is. You are the one true and living God. And that you are all powerful. So we thank you for revealing yourself in that way. And we're thankful for the fact that you didn't stop there. But that you have revealed yourself in your word and have given us more information, precise information in our Bibles. Father, 
we are at a key point here in our study of Romans where we see that everyone is accountable to you for what they know about you, for what you have made available to them. But Father, we also understand that unless you unless you gave more information, man is just stuck. Man stuck in his sin. But we know that you did in fact give more information in your son Jesus Christ. You gave us more information, not just that we were sinners, not that just we were under the uh, wrath that you have for sinful man, but you gave us information of how we could get out of that wrath, how we could escape from the wrath to come through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to thank you for that this morning as well. Father, help us to be faithful to the truth that you have given us. We know that we are very, very accountable to you. We are accountable to you because we have our Bibles, your very word to us. Lord, we are weak and we need your spirit to help us even in the most meager ways so that we are obedient to your truth. So, Father, help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And we pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.